You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. Because this false gospel, this gospel plus has come in and has completely undercut his message. Right? And these false teachers are going, that's not the gospel they preach in Jerusalem, right? That's not the gospel the real capital A apostles preach. So Paul's not a real apostle. His message isn't the real message. And so there's this huge divide. And what's going on here is, is possibly a fissure in the early church between Jew and Gentile, which is massive because that would mean that God doesn't have a people. He has two different peoples, and they relate to God on different terms. And so Paul's going, this is huge stakes, Right? Big deal, okay? So a matter arose because false brothers had infiltrated our ranks, is what verse 4 says, to spy on the freedom we have. What Paul is combating is enslavement, okay? Now, I want you to track with me because this is really key, and this is really subtle and really often missed. He's not combating enslavement to sin. He's combating enslavement to self-salvation, Okay, this whole passage is about legalism. This whole passage is about right action with wrong belief. Okay, so this is what happens. Let me unpack this. Sin, man's mortal enemy. When you become a Christian, it's because you get to see sin for what it is. By the grace of God, you see that sin always overpromises and always underlivers. That it, it, it promises freedom but leads to enslavement. Right, this is what we see in the first chapters of Genesis. Freedom, you want to be like God? Eat the apple. But what did it lead to? Actual enslavement for Adam and Eve. And, and, and that's the way it is for all of us, all right? Sin is this kind of enticing freedom, okay? But it, 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 never, it never shows up on its promises. And it enslaves us. And so a Christian is someone that finally sees sin for what it is as something that always overpromises, always underdelivers. And by the grace of God, has conviction, turns from that sin and turns back to God in repentance. Right? And so we get that part of the gospel. But what happens very subtly for most Christians and most churches is grace is kind of like we talked about last week, this kind of slippery bar of ivory soap. Ivory soap. It, it, it's hard to hold on to. Right? It's easier to put rules down. Right? Like, man, this, this clinging to Jesus thing, this loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor and myself— that's just too broad. Let me just layer in a few to-dos. And at first, those start as good things, right? We're calling a spade a spade. Like, that's wrong, that's right. That's wise, that's unwise. But very subtly and very slowly, those systems of rules can become things that we think earn God's favor. That our performance leads to God's pleasure, not Christ's performance. This is what leads to legalism. Are you tracking with me? All right. So I'm going to read uh, a, a quote from John Stott, and he, he says it this way, uh, and it's poignant. He says, a Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends up entirely upon God's grace in the death of Jesus Christ received by faith. To then introduce works of the law and make our acceptance dependent on our obedience to rules and regulations was to bring a free man into bondage again. Are you tracking with me? 
All right? So there's, there's the gospel that comes in and frees us from sin, but the temptation is to swing the pendulum all the way the other way. And before we know it, we're not enslaved to sin anymore, but we're enslaved to self-salvation, which is actually another form of sin. Right? Because we arrogantly think, we pridefully think, we insecurely think, we think too much of ourselves and too little of God and what he's done through Jesus Christ on the cross. What we are saying is it's insufficient. It can't be that simple. That's too good to be true. There's no way the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ can cover up what I did, can really atone for how dirty I feel. But that's the gospel of grace, all right? So we move into bondage, into slavery. This is what's at stake in this conflict. And if Paul doesn't hammer this down, he doesn't get at this, all the churches that he planted are going to wander from the gospel. It's going to be gospel plus, not gospel period. And that's not the gospel at all. So the source of the conflict, all right? That's what's at stake in the conflict. What about the source? The source of the conflict is the opposite of that. The source of conflict is freedom, Christian freedom, okay? Again, Christianity is anti-religion. It doesn't work like the rest of the world's religions. The rest of the world's religions say perform a little better, try a little harder, Bare knuckle it a little more. Christianity doesn't say D-O, do. It says D-O-N-E, done. And out of that come good works. Radically different. Again, we're, we're, I'm not trying to, to nuance this too much, but I don't want the gospel to ever be the ABCs of Christianity to us. The temptation for the Christian is to move past the gospel, and in doing so, you abandon it. Right? It's the A to Z, and I want you to sit in it for these first couple weeks especially as we look at the book of Galatians and just see little facets of it. What we're talking about this morning is what does it mean to be truly free? Truly free. Freedom from sin, but also freedom from self-salvation. Not freedom from works, but freedom from works as a system of salvation to earn God's favor. All right? Because if not, if you don't grasp this, here's the cycle you're going to be in. You're going to sin because you're a sinner, right? Even if you're a saved sinner, you're still a sinner. You're still in this body of death. You're still in this broken world, right? God declaring you just, justifying you, doesn't change you from being a sinner. It just declares you just even though you are a sinner, and the process of sanctification is, is you becoming less like you and more like the perfect person of Jesus Christ, you moving from one degree of glory to the next. But until you escape this body, until the new heavens and the new earth and God gives you a new one, right, a new body, you're still in this body of death. Sin is still a reality, and it's not just out there, out the windows. It's, it's in here. And you don't know the depths of depravity in your own heart. That's the process of sanctification. God's showing it to us as Christians little by little by little. And we repent, and we, we walk with them again, right? If you don't get this, what you're going to be caught up in is an endless cycle of either shame or pride, all right? Shame or pride. You're not going to, you're going to be shocked. You can't believe that you would do such a thing, right? It's like, wow, I, I, I can't believe that that was actually enticing, or I actually... I went down that road, or I actually got that caught up in that thing, or, or I, I just kind of shaded, you know, what's clearly black and white to, to shades of gray there. You'll be shocked, and, and you'll just like, you'll spin yourself in this kind of like 
web of shame, or you're going to become a really proud person. Right? <laughs> you're going to look around, look at all these serfs, right? All these common folk. Can't believe they struggle with that one, you know? I conquered that one long ago, way past it. Yeah, but know what just conquered you? Pride, which is the root of all sin. You can't fight flesh with flesh. You can't defeat sin with more sin. Okay, and Paul's going to get all into this when it comes to the, the gift of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit that come from that. Okay? But what's at stake here is freedom. And too often we think of freedom as living without constraint. Right? Like freedom is just kind of casting off all constraints. It's like, I'm a man now, Dad, right? So I just need to cast off constraint of my overbearing father, you know? Or I need to be a proud, strong woman and cast off constraint of, of my overbearing husband. Like, freedom is just is throwing constraint off. What's true, because it's false, is freedom is being constrained to the right thing or the right one, okay? Track with me. The constraint of riverbanks actually lets a river flow to the sea, okay? The constraint of gravity actually lets a five-year-old bounce with glee on a trampoline, right? There are certain constraints that are necessary for, for certain freedoms to be enjoyed. And at this, this reality of Christian freedom is you need to be constrained not to the right thing but to the right one, okay? Not to the right thing but to the right one. You need to be constrained to Christ, the fulfiller of the law, not the law. Are you tracking with me? True Christian freedom requires constraint. True Christian freedom requires constraint to Christ. That produces in the Christian a joy to live radically different. If your constraint is to the law, right? If you, you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you go, yeah, I believe it, but then you don't tether yourself to Christ who fulfilled the law on your behalf, but you tell yourself to the law, you're going to start performing and start working out your salvation. And so what you started with with grace, you're not going to continue with. And that's going to turn you into a legalist. That's going to enslave you. That's going to exhaust you. That's going to put you on the hamster wheel of religious performance. And you can't get off of it. Okay? The source of this conflict, what's going on here, what Paul's challenging, is legalism. He doesn't think the apostles in Jerusalem never got the gospel. He's wondering if the apostles in Jerusalem are staying true to the gospel. Or did their cultural preferences seep in? Did their cultural preferences seep in, and, and are they agreeing and confirming these false teachers, you know, false gospel, that yes, you have to add to the gospel and be circumcised. You have to add the gospel and become culturally Jewish before you actually become Christian. That your righteousness is not just solely based upon the, the work of Jesus Christ, but upon your own efforts following it, okay? This is what Tim Keller says about moralistic religion. I'm gonna read a few quotes for us today because uh, he just gets it right on. He says this, moralistic religion tends, and it's such an, uh, an apt cultural observation, it tends to press its members to adopt very specific rules and regulations for dress and daily behavior. Why? Why? And this is what's key. If your salvation depends on obeying the rules, then you want your rules to be very specific, doable, and clear. You tracking? Very specific, doable, and clear. You don't want love your neighbor as yourself. 
because it's an impossibly high standard with endless implications. You want, don't go to the movies, don't drink alcohol, don't eat this type of food. Right? Again, I'm not saying, and track with me on this, I'm not talking about the external actions. I'm talking about the internal motivations. This is where Jesus gets deeper than any other moral teacher. Why do you do what you do? If it's not motivated out of the fact that God has graciously granted you life in his son, an adoption into his family, then you are trying to earn something. And you're going to be tending towards very specific rules and regulations because that feels safe. And what Paul's saying is that's actually going to lead to a different kind of enslavement. So you just traded enslavement for sin to enslavement of self-salvation, which in a way is enslavement to sin because your pride is underneath that or your insecurity, which is reverse pride, and you're trying to either earn something or confirm something. Are you tracking with me? I don't want to lose this here, but there's a lot of nuance to it. It's really deep. All right, and, and in southern conservative Indiana, this is where people miss it because you're more conservative than you are Christian, okay? You understand the actions that your parents passed down to you. You may even understand the values, but you haven't grasped the core bedrock beliefs beneath it all. Convictions, values, actions. And so you do what you do because that's what you do, and that's what's been done. And I want us to understand the core convictions of Christianity, the core beliefs of the gospel. And that will change our values in radical ways and ultimately change our actions. All right? So, lastly, the solution. What happens? All right, this matter arises. It makes Paul and Barnabas, taking along Titus, travel really far, right? This isn't a short Uber ride, okay? Travel really far to figure this thing out. Because Paul's going... If not, I'm running in circles. If not, 15 plus years of the work that I've done is all for naught because I can't overcome this. I got to make sure that the apostles in Jerusalem are preaching the same gospel. All right? There's a lot at stake here. All right? So, the solution to the conflict. All right? First, an answer is in who, and then an answer is in what. All right? And who they went with and what they returned with. All right, look at the text. Notice who Paul brings. Paul and Barnabas, Jewish Christians, bring along with them a guest, Titus. That sounds like a Roman name to me. All right, Titus was a Gentile Christian. Titus was not a Jewish Christian, all right? And they did this on purpose. So Paul and Barnabas take a guest. They take Titus, and look what Paul says. Look at his line of argumentation. He says, not even Titus, in verse 3, who was with me was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. All right? So what Paul's saying is, look, we brought a Gentile Christian with us, and the apostles in Jerusalem are not preaching what you're preaching here, Judaizers, because Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. They accepted Titus because God accepted Titus as a brother. Right? That's massive. Are you tracking with that? All right? So that's who they went with, okay? Then, what they, talk, what they brought back, back with them, okay? Look at uh, verse 6. It says, they added nothing to me. My gospel wasn't too good to be true. 
It wasn't too simple. It wasn't easy to believeism. They didn't add anything to it. They believed the same gospel period, okay? On the contrary, verse 7, they saw, I have been trusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to be circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. Translation, there's not two gospels. There's not a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. There's one gospel. It's Christ's gospel. It's just contextualized differently. So the way Paul speaks, he's speaking so that Gentile ears can hear it and understand. The way Peter's speaking, he's speaking so that Jewish ears can hear it and understand. Right? Apply it a little more differently. People will pick up this book and they'll open up the letters of Paul. They'll read the doctrines of grace, justification by faith alone. Right? Or by grace alone, through faith alone. And then they'll open up James. Who is Paul talking to here? Who are the three pillars? And they go, man, James is talking about salvation by works and grace. Paul's talking about salvation by grace. It's two different gospels. No, it's not. It's the same gospel to two different audiences. You need to understand who they are speaking to and what the issue is. Paul is trying to tease out this addition to the gospel, this gospel plus, and this using of works to justify oneself. James is talking to people who just want to perform but have no heart motivation And he says, you'll know my grace by my works. But they're not preaching two different things. They're preaching one gospel message. And the beauty of it is what Paul says. He says, I fought this fight, look at verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Like, can you imagine if Paul didn't fight this fight? I want you to imagine for a second. Because what you would have is deep insecurity that in any way, shape, or form, you could stand righteous before God Because you're not Jewish. And even if you try to be Jewish, you you can't keep up the law. This is why the apostles go, let's not put on the Gentiles a burden we ourselves couldn't bear. We know that man is only righteous through God, through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, being in him. And so the Christian is someone that doesn't enslave themselves, I'm using that word rightly, to the law, but they enslave themselves to Christ. They become a servant of Christ. They tether themselves to Christ. And he is where we get our confidence, okay? Now, I want to apply this uh, a little differently, so I'm going to mess with my terms a little bit. Um, Again, the gospel doesn't free us just from sin, but it frees us from from this hamster wheel of self-salvation, okay? Our culture thinks in categories of religious and irreligious, right? Our culture thinks in these categories. The problem with these categories is they're wrong, all right? They're wrong. They're not helpful categories. The Bible doesn't really speak in these categories, okay? Um, The gospel for the religious, okay, uh, is is something like this. I want you to hear this if if you would maybe wear that term. Funny enough, and I love talking to, to unchurched, uh, or de-church people, and just pointing this out because it, it's so obvious but so often missed. The hardest things that Jesus said were to the religious. Like Jesus, Jesus didn't show up and just start talking to irreligious people and being like, man, get it straight, clean it up. The hardest things he said were to the most religious, the Pharisees, the legalists, the people with right action and wrong belief. This is the hardest things he said. Okay? The religious person postures. 
All right? The religious person postures. They want to posture to the world, and they want to posture to God that they got it all together. Okay? They elevate themselves in pride. All right? Now, the irreligious person, on the other hand, thinks the religious people are hypocrites, and they're right. They're right. Religious people are hypocrites very often. Okay? They, they almost want to say, man, it, <laughs> I'm not as bad as them. Even though I do worse things, I don't claim to be good. Okay? So, the religious person doesn't fool God. The religious person doesn't fool anybody around them. The only thing or the only person that the religious person fools is themselves, and that's what pride does, right? It, it, it kind of distorts our sense of self. All right, but where the irreligious person doesn't elevate themselves, the irreligious person de-elevates, is that a word? Um, it lowers the standard, okay? The religious person elevates themselves to get over the bar. The irreligious person just lowers the bar, but they're both trying to get over the bar. Are you tracking with me? What I want you to see is that the irreligious person and the religious person are both working after self-salvation. They're actually the same person. When you really get down to it, there is no difference. They are putting their confidence in their own effort and trying to earn righteousness before God, right standing before God. This is where the gospel of grace comes in. The gospel of grace comes in and offers freedom for the religious and the irreligious. Because you can be irreligious and be hypocritical. You can be irreligious and be a legalist. Right? Because you have some set of beliefs that you are trying to strive towards. And what you have to do is look all around you at everyone else and judge them and see how much better you are, them, are than them because you're so insecure, you've got to be a notch above. The gospel frees you from that. Because God's judgment is rendered, and he extends grace to you on the merit of Christ alone. And that radically changes people. That radically changes a legalist like Paul to become this, this unbelievable promoter of this doctrine of grace by, by faith. Are you tracking with me? Again, a lot of nuance, all right? I want to end with this. Actually, I want to, I want to add a few more things, Sorry. <clears throat> I'm going to read another Tim Keller quote because I love him. I love the man. You know, we, we play this game a lot. Like, name three people that you'd want to just, like, have dinner with, spend time with. Like, it's, Tim Keller's one of them for me. I don't know. Tom Hanks, Tim Keller. I don't know who else. Denzel. I don't know. You know? If anybody played me in a movie, you know, a biography, I'd want it to be Denzel. But that's neither here nor there. Tim Keller writes this. He says, both false teachers and Paul told Christians to obey the Ten Commandments, okay? Both of them told, told, told Christians to obey the Ten Commandments. Both of them had the same communication on the outward effort and energy, okay? It's the internal motivation where they are radically different. The false teachers in Paul said it for two different reasons and motives. Unless your motive for obeying God's law is grace, gratitude, the gospel... Unless your motive is that, you're in slavery. I want you to think about that. What are you tethered to? 
Is it a who or a what? Is it Christ who fulfilled the law or is it the law itself? And it may not be the capital L law. It may be the lowercase, lowercase L law that, you've, that God's written on your heart. Whatever your system of rules and regulations it is, your do's and don'ts, or you're resting in the grace of God. Okay? Now, this passage goes on to talk about the poor. I just want to say one note about it. Okay? The legalist feels like if they don't have the rules, they won't do the right things. Look at what the apostles tell Paul to do. As he closes out, look, in this passage. They only ask one thing, verse 10. They ask only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. And what you see all throughout Paul's letters, all throughout the New Testament, are these really wealthy Gentile churches, okay, these, the Greek world, generously gathering their resources and sending it to these more impoverished Jewish churches. Over and over again, Paul's taking up collections. He's going, man, your brothers and sisters in Christ that are Jewish, are struggling. You in the Gentile world have wealth, resources, material wealth. I want you to give it generously. What an evidence of what grace produces in the life when it really takes root. All right? They don't have the law. They're not performing all that kind of stuff, but they're actually being more generous with their lives. There's more evidence uh, uh, of grace at work in their lives. Right? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying don't... Honor God with your life. I'm not saying don't work to build his kingdom. I'm saying what is your motivation to do such? And what will actually motivate you to obey God more faithfully, what will actually motivate you to build his kingdom more fervently is grace taking root in your life, not legalism. And that's what's true of these Gentile churches, okay? Charles Spurgeon um, challenges uh, it this way. He says, there's no necessity to tell you to remember the rich, to be very respectful and speak very kindly and lovingly to those who are above you. You will take care of yourselves at that point, but it's the poor you are disposed to not attend to, and therefore I will press you on this commandment. Remember the poor. I'm going to close with this picture, and I've used it before um, in, in our, our Sunday gatherings, but uh, Les Mis, okay? Um, powerful, powerful uh, play, powerful movie, um, Big fan of Hugh Jackman. That's another guy that can play me. Uh, he can sing. He's strapped. Wolverine. Um, Les Mis is this powerful picture of grace. Okay? And all throughout the story, you have this protagonist, Jean Valjean, and this antagonist, Javert, working back and forth. Jean Valjean is a picture of grace. Javert is a picture of the law. Okay? Jean Valjean sings a soliloquy. Uh, that's a hard word, on the front end of Les Mis, and Javert sings um, what's called his suicide uh, song on the back end, but it's set to the same music and has the same language, okay? And I want to read a couple lines from each. But Jean Valjean is this criminal. Um, he pays his just due. He gets out. He's got nothing going for him. He finds himself in a monastery, and he ends up stealing from the monastery, from the priest and the nuns, and he's caught, and all it is is one word from the priest to put him back into prison, and the priest forgives him. And doesn't just forgive him, actually takes the other candlesticks he didn't steal and adds to him kind of thing. Not just mercy, but grace. Not giving him what he did deserve, but giving him what he didn't deserve. And it wrecks Jean Valjean. I mean, wrecks him. And he says this, take an eye for an eye, 
Turn your heart into stone. This is all I live for. This is all I've known. All I've known is justice. All I've known is law. But one word from him, and I'd be back. One word from the priest. I'd be beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there any other way to go? I'm reaching, but I fall. The night is closing in. I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. In that moment, in that story, Jean Valjean was reborn by grace. You fast forward through the movie, and Jean Valjean passes that grace on to Javert, who has chased him and tracked him. Instead of putting the knife to Javert's throat, he gives him back his life. Javert's response, quite different. He says this, And must I now begin to doubt what I never doubted all those years? My heart is stone, but still it trembles. The world I have known is lost in shadow. Is he from heaven or from hell? And does he know that granting me my life today, this man has killed me so? And showing me grace, he has killed me so. I am reaching, but I fall. The stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that I cannot hold. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There's nowhere I can turn. There's no way I can go on. And Javert takes his life. Javert was a legalist. Javert had right actions but wrong beliefs. And he was so impacted by grace, but his heart was so full of stone, so hardened, he couldn't respond to it. Jean Valjean was broken, and he was reborn. Javert didn't want to live in a world that wasn't legalistic, that wasn't ruled by law and justice. And I have to tell you, I hope grace breaks your heart. I hope grace melts you because you're not good enough. When you or I stand before the one righteous, holy, just God, and we have to give an account, not just for our actions, but every thought and intention behind them, we will fall woefully short. And what you need to hear today in the gospel is that you can have Christ's righteousness to stand in. You can be tethered to the fulfiller of the law, the one righteous one, rather than the law itself. So you can hear Welcome, son. Welcome, daughter. That's the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is completely contrary to legalism. And that's what makes our hearts sing as Christians. So let me pray for us. And we can close out. And my hope is that we would be a community that lives radically different because of the gospel of grace. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that Paul fought for the preservation of the truth of the gospel, that we have it right before us in his letters. And we thank you that you just don't give up on us. We know that we're all recovering legalists, that we want to wander towards working and earning and effort. We thank you that it's by grace alone. And so I just pray that they would continue to seep deep into us, that it would change us, that we would be different than we leave here. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that he got what he didn't deserve so that we could get what we don't deserve. 
And we sing praises to him. We ask these things in his name, his authority, his power. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.